Welcome to this lecture on digital policing. And this lecture is part of a series looking at the commuterization of various aspects of society, or digital society as it's now sometimes called. My name's Richard Harvey. I'm a professor of computer science at the University of East Anglia. I'm also the IT professor at Gresham College. My post is sponsored by the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists, who uh, do good works, but they also have a mission to educate the public about the uh, benefits and presumably the disbenefits of IT. And in this lecture, we're going to talk about some of the benefits and some of the disbenefits. Uh, because the title references Robocop, it occurred to me that not everyone might have seen Robocop. So I'm going to start with a, uh, a clip uh, from the film. OCP's newest soldier in their revolutionary crime management program. OCP spokesman claimed that the fearless machine has crooks on the run in old Detroit. Today, kids at Lee Iacocca Elementary School got to meet in person what their parents only read about in comic books. Robo, excuse me, Robo, any special message for all the kids watching at home? Ow. Stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble. Yeah, that's one of the catchphrases from the... Uh the film, the 1987 Verhoeven film. Uh, I, I should say it's remarkably difficult to get some clips from uh, Robocop that one can actually play without um, crossing the censors, uh, either because there's, there's far too much violence or there's too much swearing. Right, well, that was fantasy. What about the reality? Now, I'm going to just, uh, I'm going to veer between across a variety of different country systems when talking about uh, crime and crime and punishment, but I'd like to start with the UK, and I'd like to start with this statistic that sort of tells us something about the emergency services, just to put crime in context in the UK. So, in 2017, there were around 37 million calls to the emergency uh, service, 999 calls, as they're called in the United Kingdom, or 911 in the USA. Or, or 112 in uh, pretty much every other country, including the UK and the USA. 112 is the GSM emergency number. By the way, the fact that every single country has a separate emergency number is going to be a little exemplar of the sort of problem we're going to face when trying to help the police and the criminal justice system with automation. Far too much variation. In the UK, emergency calls are dominated by two emergency services. One is the police, which I think has the slightly larger share. The other is ambulance. Then there are uh, there are other services you can call um, with a 999 call, uh, but they're very small indeed. Uh, so the fire service uh, has a very small number of calls that I put in the Coast Guard, which is the next one here. Coast Guard is minuscule for obvious reasons. You know, it deals with a very specialist um, area of the UK, namely the coast only. Uh, and of course it has other ways of, there are other ways of raising an emergency 
with the uh, the Coast Guard Marine VHF uh, being amongst them. Um, I know the fire service, um, and I have to be, one doesn't want to criticise the fire service because of course the people in the fire service do a very, uh, you know, do a fantastic job. But it is a fact that the calls on fire services are decreasing over the years. And in many countries or regions, the fire service has been merged with either the police service or the ambulance service. And we'll look at that, an, exa an example of that later on in this lecture. And uh, at the moment, they all maintain their own um, control rooms and they all have their own uh, response systems in this country, the United Kingdom anyway. Uh, the, uh, the phone calls are all mediated through uh, one of the telecommunications providers, British Telecom, who handle these 37 million calls. Uh, another interesting statistic is around a quarter of the calls to the police uh, are emergencies. Roughly a third of the calls to the ambulance service result in a dispatch of an ambulance. So there's an important aspect here, which is that the, and the police services and the ambulance service, I think, recognise this, that they are to some extent just a first responder service. And quite a lot of their calls will not be a crime. Uh, they won't be even a police matter. You know, there'll be a disturbance or, um, you know, uh, my neighbour is wandering around the garden in his underpants. Can you do something? Now, uh, this movement of the police and ambulance service in particular to being a sort of first responder service, uh, a, a, version of, a version of the social services, is quite dramatic and has led to some quite increased call volumes and sort of increase at the front end of police services around the world. And a lot of police services therefore have sort of triage that happens early on in the service to try and make sure that the trained officers go to deal with response things that they're, they're trained to deal with. Now, for those of you who are living in the United Kingdom, you might think of the UK as a rather peaceful uh, country with low levels of crime. I'm not sure that is true. Um, oh, well, let me just say a sort of amusing statistic that uh, the top five callers in 2017 to the emergency services made between them 8,303 calls. So that's another indication of some of the problems the poor police and the ambulance services face. You've got these sort of repeat uh, frequent flyers, as it were, who call the police for every little thing and expect them to turn up. Right, now on to this sort of low crime business. This is um, the um, output from the uh, victimization uh, survey that runs spasmodically across uh, a lot of countries in the world and it actually indicates that uh, the UK is not particularly a low crime uh, uh, country um, if you're to believe these surveys. Now these surveys are much debated you know, some people think that some countries are much more but people are much more likely in a survey to say that they have been a victim of crime than in other countries uh, particularly if your country has a corrupt police force, then you're, you want to keep away from them so you don't report crime at all. So possibly there's a reporting difference. Um, and these are the countries on the bottom of the list. Spain, Norway, Scandinavian countries and so on. Interestingly, reformers often point out that the countries at the bottom of the list tend to have a much more interest in uh, avoiding prison. So they have a more sort of reformative um, justice 
system. Okay, well, that's the sort of way of background, which is when it comes to the police, anyway, we've got this sort of expanding use of the police. We've got uh, a need to handle a wide variety of problems, possibly in an environment of increasing demands from the public and increasing expectation from the public. So what does this mean for digital crime and justice systems? Well, I suppose the first question one might ask is, what on earth do we mean by digital policing? And what is policing and what is a criminal justice system? Well, when I was preparing this lecture, I, I sort of struggled a bit and I, I eventually, being a you know, software engineer, I thought well, I have to have a block diagram that shows me something you know, of what the uh, criminal justice system might look, at, look like. So that's what I've done here. I've tried to split the um, criminal justice system into, into blocks. And the first block is to do with um, intelligence gathering and trying to understand what's going on in society. So a public report shown at the top here might come in you know, as, as a suspicious man wandering outside my house. And at the bottom there, I've sort of noted ephemera, meaning general knowledge about uh, society, which may or may or may not be written down. I don't know how much of this does get recorded. And it's a, it's a matter of controversy how much the uh, police and intelligence services could and should record in such situations, actually. Then the next box is to do with uh, crime, you know, reporting a crime. And crimes can be reported by people or police might notice them themselves. Um, and of course, there are cases where crime is reported, but it isn't really a crime, uh, in which case that becomes a sort of null case. And then towards the end of a system, we have investigation, criminal investigation, and cases are either pursued or dropped. And then they, we go into the uh, justice system or the court system. And the output of, in England anyway, is that either someone is guilty or innocent. Uh, in other uh, dominions, there are uh, alternative um, judgments sort of intermediate judgments. We couldn't make our mind up sort of judgments, but basically it's a binary um, decision. So in terms of information flow, you've got this enormous amount of information at the front of the funnel, as it were, and at the end of it, you've got a binary information, guilty or not guilty, and everything else is discarded and sorted by the system. Uh, well, I was quite pleased with this diagram um, when I produced it. And um, I then uh, overlaid the National Police Chiefs Council's uh, digital policing portfolio on top of that. Um, what they've done is they've sort of segmented the processes and systems that they're dealing with into really three um, areas. The first one is sort of dealing with the public, and they call that digital public contact, DPC. The second one is making sure the whole criminal justice system flows smoothly and seamlessly without paper and without a lot of machine into machine translation, format translation from investigation and intelligence through to justice. And they call that digital first. And then there's the middle bit. And the middle bit's the bit that Robocop focuses on, a bit that all the TV focuses on, a bit, you know, it's all the NCIS uh, type programs focus on, and that's digital intelligence and investigation, DII. 
Um, okay, well, as I said, I was, I was sort of pretty uh, attracted uh, to this, and I'm actually going to use it as uh, the structure for this lecture. So I'm going to take us through these uh, three areas of uh, policing, and I want to start with digital first. So digital first, if you remember, that is the necessity to get information moving across the criminal justice system in a secure way that doesn't involve format translation, repetition or uh, data loss. And that might sound a very easy thing to say and, and you know this is quite trivial to say well they should all be connected shouldn't they? But actually these uh, challenges, systems architecture challenges, can be very very um, pernicious and, and long-running. And to give you uh, a reason for that, I'm going to show you a, a diagram which is really sort of, I think, heroic work by the uh, Government Digital Service. The Government Digital Service, I'm referring to the UK government here, or GDS, is part of the Cabinet Office. And um, they're not that well known, but they should be better known. I think they're the sort of hidden heroes of the civil service, really. Um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to redesign the um, government to fit, well they have 10 um, objectives for design and the first one is they've got to start with user needs, they think government should do less, they should design with data, they should do the hard work to make it simple, meaning you should put in a lot of work on systems design and architecture. And you iterate and iterate again. Try and remember this is for everyone, meaning don't leave people out. Don't forget about the the, the non-inclusion of certain part, the digital divide as it's called. Understand the context. Build digital services, not websites. That's important. You know, the government isn't just a website, it's a service. Be consistent but not uniform. Make things open, it makes things better. Okay, well, as part of their principle of making things open, they produced this absolutely monster. Um, diagram of the criminal justice system. It's so large it won't fit on a slide. So I, what I've done is I've redrawn it. And um, you can see it on this slide here. Now on the top line here we've got sketched external users. So the top left there is a member of the public. and They are having some input into the, uh, the criminal justice system. In the middle of this system are activities things that various actors in the system undertake. And at the bottom, we've got internal users. So the first one down the bottom there is a, is a police officer. Now, as I run this across the screen, I hope you can see we're scanning through from intelligence and investigation through to the sort of activities that might be undertaken by the police through to the preparation of cases and dealing with victims, through to, at the end, the business of trial, and then at the end, prison, fines, and restorative justice. And it's deliberate that in this um, diagram, they have not named the services delivering the various parts of this uh, system. And there's, a, a reason, there's a reason for that. I mean, firstly, customers or users of the service couldn't care less what the name of the service is, they only care about the service. Users will tend to assume that your service is connected, even though it may not be. There's nothing more irritating to me when somebody says, oh, that's someone else's job, you, know, you need to go and knock on another door. So 
for this um, this is a deliberate attempt to try and focus on function that said when you do start to make a list of people involved it is pretty uh, surprising list so um, here are some of the actors in the UK do I mean UK yes UK um, system so we've got some NGOs here people might be concerned with whether the law works at all okay uh, we've got lo local partnerships and they're trying to connect various other bodies we've got people who are capable of doing detection and investigation a staggering number here I always think um, at least um, 43 police uh, territorial police forces um, so your trivia question what is the smallest police force in the UK City of London uh, which has I think about uh, 600 officers and then Warwickshire which is a little bit bigger largest Metropolitan Police 31,000 um, officers or, or Scotland which has about 17,000 officers in uh, Scottish police okay and then you also have non-territorial police forces um, they've missed one actually off this list um, so you've got the transport police the MOD police the civil nuclear constabulary um, there you go there's a fascinating one civil nuclear constabulary they're the people who are responsible for protecting um, civilian power plants in this country and escorting uh, nuclear material as it sneaks its way around the country they have a thousand officers thousand officers they have more officers than the smaller um, police forces and in the course of um, a year the year that I looked at which I think was 2017 they managed to make a sum total of 12 arrests two of which were incorrect <laughs> now the reason I'm laughing um, will become apparent but let's just have a look at a few more of the people we've got 60 bodies in this country who are capable of prosecuting uh, 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 people we've got this group of characters who can run trials we've got these people involved in witness services and this these people involved in probation so um, here's a nice quote from uh, the government gym service blog and I'll just read a bit of it the more you look at this map referring to the previous uh, amazing diagram the more you realize that the criminal justice system isn't a system at all of course it was never designed to work this way but that's because it was never actually designed right this is a big issue ladies and gentlemen and the problem is if you don't design the system is it reasonable to automate it or to digitize it you're creating enormously complex uh, digitization problem because of the fact that you don't have a system so everybody has an exception and this large number of actors this large number of bodies all with their different um, interests and uh, domains and dominions make the effective automation of the service impossible and Britain is not unique in this regard I mean the USA has a very complex uh, regional system as well a lot of established democracies have quite complex systems the UK is unusual in its regionality I think it's very common in 
uh, Europe to have uh, police forces by function. So you might have um, in Italy, for example, you've got a finance police, you've got a, you've got a police who specialise in certain types of crime, uh, and that probably makes some sense. But I really think this is a this is a major issue for society. It's incredibly expensive having this um, these little fiefdoms. And in the UK, the introduction of um, police crime commissioners who are elected officials who are meant to look after various bits of these dominions have made things worse. Because, of course, you know, the last thing they want to do is put themselves out of a job and merge with someone else. So this is a very big issue, I think. It is very serious, uh, this aspect, and it's going to be very expensive and it's going to hinder the digitisation of our police forces. Um, but I can't say much more about it than that, so I'm just going to park it for the time being, and I'll, I'll come back to it when I look a bit more about the future. But um, I'm, now, I'm going to talk now about some of the more sort of whiz-bang things, some of the things that make the, you know, the press get excited. Um, but let's keep in the back of our minds this fundamental uh, issue, which is the architecture of the criminal justice system in a lot of established democracies, is too complicated, has poor structure, and is not really amenable to effective digitisation. Now then, on to the more exciting stuff, I guess, which is digital intelligence and investigation, or cyber investigation, if you prefer. The first thing I should point out is that cyber investigation is not only associated with cyber crime. And in fact, cyber crime is a relatively minor um, aspect of um, policing, and I'm not going to talk about it today. What I should, would want to point out is that even sort of humdrum crime, everyday crime, nowadays will often have a cyber aspect to it. If you think about, say, uh, rape, where essentially, you know, one person accuses something of somebody else, something else, the, it's very common in those circumstances for police officers to have to get access to the personal communication devices of both the alleged victim and the alleged rapist uh, to work out if there was any communication between them beforehand, you know, either by SMS or WhatsApp or any of those things. And, and the services that will be looking at are often end-to-end -end encrypted, they're often based in foreign territories and so on and so on and so on. So, uh, you know, that, that, that is an issue. Now, just to illustrate how ordinary crime is considerably easily detected, much more easily detected by the use of great cyber detective work. I'm just going to show you a quick clip from Murder 24-7, which was a factual documentary um, series run on the BBC recently, very well shot. Um, and this is a very short clip taken from the middle of, a, of, of what they call a manhunt. Hi Steve, um, I've just got some more data through for Slater, so I thought I'd give you a quick update. So, it's 7.37 this morning, Slater's phone activates a mask on the corner of Chalkwell Avenue and this associate's home address is on Chalkwell Avenue. This is definitely the mask that he would activate if he had been at that address and if not he's been in the vicinity. Okay. So uh, there was an intelligence official. Um, she had managed to get access to the, uh, the, the person they were hunting's mobile phone. Uh, they had worked out uh, which mobile um, 
master being activated. That's a lot easier in urban areas because the cells and cellular systems are quite small. And they got a vector out of it. So the, there was a little arrow pointing out of the mast. And that's because I expect the mast uses um, adaptive uh, beamforming. So you can work out roughly where the, uh, where the signal was at any one time. This is a very important issue. It's, it's a bit overlooked, but police forces are having to have a lot of energy put into this sort of um, back office um, cyber investigation. And um, it's either taking, essentially taking officers off the front line or it's costing a lot of money. You know, these, these activities are not cheap and each police force is having to replicate them and or, or, or share. So what you're tending to see is that police forces are tending to share back office operations. Um, just to flick back to the earlier point, which is there are too many police forces for uh, sensible digitization. The police, I think, must realize this themselves and because of cost and already beginning to have to share specialist intelligence services because they're not that specialist anymore. They're being used all the time. Okay, so there was an example of just ordinary crime being facilitated, if you like, by good digital investigations. And there's clearly a need for better toolkits, uh, better systemization, and less human intervention in all of that stuff. And, you know, in time it will come. What about driving the investigation through data or digital technology? Well, the idea for that, I suppose, is quite ancient. Um, Lambert uh, Quetelet was uh, generally credited with the observation that crime doesn't take place equally across uh, dominions. And so, you know, the sort of early 1800s, he published this little treatise on, among, on lots of, it covers lots of things, but amongst it was the inhomogeneity of crime. So he was based in uh, Brabant, which I think was in France at the time. So he, he looked at French crime and he was able to look at statistics of crimes against people and crimes against persons, we still have those categories, and was able to show that basically there were some hotspots. So um, this is um, you know, quite well known. And if you know where crime is likely to happen, then you could use predictive policing. Well, the, the, the ultimate expression, I suppose, of predictive policing or one of the uh, systems that is best well known for predictive policing is called uh, Predpol. And um, probably the simplest way I can explain Predpol is to just play you this short clip um, from the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, television uh, service, which explains it. Police patrol the streets of Los Angeles, make a traffic stop, then make an arrest. These scenes might seem like any day in the life of a police officer, but new crime prediction software called Predpol, short for predictive policing, aims to make police work anything but random. It identifies areas in your division that are at the highest risk of a crime occurring during a certain time period. Captain Sean Malinowski is the commanding officer at the Foothill Community Police Station, a division of the Los Angeles Police Department, and one of the first departments in the United States to test Predpol. Twice a day, his officers get a list of 20 500-foot by 500-foot boxes to patrol. The most common crimes? Burglary, burglary for motor vehicle, and grand theft auto. Out of the 5,100 plus boxes in the whole division, um, these are the ones that have the highest probability. All right, first things first, 
Fred Pole Maps. Uh... After a randomized test run by the department that pitted the software against a human analyst, the results are promising. Burglary had a 25% decrease, and that's 22 times in a week, every week that somebody came home from work and did not find their house burglarized. So how does it work? Predpol identifies crime generators, places full of people or cars that create opportunities for criminals. If you take your car and you go and park at, let's say, a major transit hub and you're gonna take the train downtown, there are lots of people who can see your car and see that you left some money or a laptop sitting on, on the front seat. Predpol also forecasts repeat victimization. If your house was broken into once, there's a higher chance it'll happen again. Offenders say, I like to go back to the places where I was successful before because I know what the risks are. And near repeat victimization. If your home is burglared, your neighbor's home has higher odds it might be too. And why is that? It's because your neighbor's house is a lot like your house. Unlike this clip from Minority Report, Predpol doesn't predict who will commit future crimes, only where a crime might occur. And it actually may reduce the number of arrests by stopping crimes before they start. What I tell the officers is, I need you to disrupt the crime. You know, be in the box and deny the criminal the opportunity to commit the crime. The result? We discovered the narcotics inside the trunk. While shooting our interview with Captain Malinowski, officers returned to the station with this. A bag of methamphetamine valued at thousands of dollars, found inside a Predpol box. And later that night, during a routine patrol, officers found this woman, with $100,000 worth of warrants, out for her arrest. She was sitting in a suspicious car, parked inside one of the Predpol boxes. But was this the result of a computer algorithm, or just some old-fashioned police work? For some, the jury is still out. Unfortunately, it doesn't take into consideration uh, you know, the objective things that we see in the field, the subjective things that officers kind of know intuitively. Sold on it? Nah. But it's a, it's, it's a good attempt. It's a good approach. But Malinowski thinks it does work and that the cost is worth it. When you look at the crime reduction, you know, in a year, you're probably sa saving in cost to society about $2 million just in my division alone. Now installed in police stations from Seattle to South Carolina, Perhaps Predpol will soon save your home from burglary without you ever knowing it. Okay, so that was a nice little piece. And uh, Predpol was designed by uh, the scientist you saw in the clip there, uh, who hails from uh, UCLA, if I remember rightly. I think he's an anthropologist. And um, it's a learned system. So it has to learn the crime statistics for a, for a neighborhood. So you have to have good uh, crime recording and report recording and of course it, it, it adapts uh, as you go through the system. It, it's been heavily criticised um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the criticisms later. There's a group of people who are very determined to um, criticise electronic assistance for uh, police police officers and um, you know, I'll talk a bit why, why that might, might is. One thing to just counter though, the, the officer there who said um, Predpol doesn't take account of the objective things we find on the ground. That's not true. I mean, it does. It also relies on good policing. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not sure if you gave me the boxes for Norwich, which is where I live, you know, that I'm not sure that I would be able to spot crimes about to happen. That takes experience and knowledge. You know, you have to be a trained police officer to, to do that. You need to have a nose. I'll talk a bit about having a nose later on. So that's a 
first example of a system that's an, a decision aid that helps uh, police officers make decisions. Uh, I'll pick one, another one from this country. This is the Harm Assistant Risk, Risk Tool, which was deployed by Old Hart, which was deployed by Durham Constabulary. Um, it was first proven using some crime data from Philadelphia, if I remember rightly, and um, the academics involved are at the bottom of the slide here. The idea was to create a decision tree using knowledge of, I think it's 37 variables that they record about the individual. So, for example, age of the individual, uh, date since their last crime and so on. And the aim is to try and systemize the decision on whether to offer someone um, probation or not. And probation, it, probation is a, a matter of uh, weighted risk. Okay, so you need to decide whether somebody is likely to reoffend, and it can become highly charged. Um, in the UK, for example, there was a famous case where a a small child was uh, kidnapped and, and murdered, called the Jamie Bolger case. And public interest was very high in this case. And if I remember rightly, the Home Secretary intervened on the probation decision for the for the murderers. They were up for uh, probation because they were, I think they were underage when the, um, when the murder took place. And there were quite a few contested court cases around that probation decision. Um, and that the consequence of those court cases was to sort of muddy the waters, I think, about whether you could be rational or, or not in the uh, decision of probation. From my perspective, these sorts of tools are highly um, advantageous, but I do accept that used in used badly, there is the potential for um, harm. We might term these bits of software decision aids. They're programs that are meant to help law enforcement officials of various types make decisions. And I think in the literature you'll find it's pretty um, common for some innovation to be um, produced and described. And there will be some early adopters and police forces that are particularly technologically literate or, or you know, wish, wish to move early. And at that point, there will usually be a series of articles um, criticising the adoption of these these tools. And um, there'll be a whole panoply of um, reasons put forward for criticism. I mean, the first one, which isn't on the slide, perhaps I should have put it on, is are legal reasons, you know, because in a lot of the world works on case law system, it's relative, relatively easy to find case law that can cause difficulty with automatic systems. Uh, now, if we think back to the first section of this talk, where I said that the criminal justice system is a bit of a muddle, isn't really a system at all. The, the answer would be from a systems analyst is, well, you should change the law so that these systems can work properly. Uh, so I'm just gonna park those sort of legalistic arguments for the time being, because I don't really see them as very, um, powerful you know I mean, if they if they're based on some solid ethical principles then they're powerful but if it's merely a technicality to do with the law we'll change the way the law works uh, that would be my you know the obvious thing i would say another feature is bias and this can be a most knotty problem uh 
it's fair to say that certain biases are particularly charged in certain territories, you know, so ethnicity and the US is obsessed with um, with race and ethnicity. So for, for obvious reasons because of its culture. So it's not a surprise to find those mentioned quite heavily. Biases can be quite knotty to uh, get away from um, because you, you don't always know they're there. So just to pick an example, Heart, which was the, uh, the system deployed in Durham, uh, for a while anyway, used is Experian Mosaic data. Mosaic data is uh, commercial data which categorise people by their, their lifestyle and their postcode. So you can look at a postcode and say, oh yes, uh, these sort of people live here. Well, it's quite easy to see how that can lead to racial and poverty bias. Um, it's not the fault of someone that they happen to live in a postcode that is problematic in terms of, say, average income. It's not their fault that they live there. They just happen to live there. There might be all sorts of reasons why they're living there. It's nothing to do with them. It's an aggregate feature of people who live there. So that, that needs um, some care. However, I think I should at this point give a sort of warning. I, I've come across this in other lectures in this series, you know, and I, I perhaps haven't been as explicit as I'm going to be now, but let me, let me, let me try and be as explicit as possible. So I'm going to give you a sort of Luddite warning. Okay, so there's a group of people out there who are determined to write articles as to why computer systems are incompatible with various aspects of digital society. And for example, in my next lecture on digital, on cashless society, uh, we will have to examine some of those criticisms. They, the thing that really irritates me about a lot of them isn't that they're critical, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of life, but you, you've got to look at the human system that is there now if, to compare against. It's just not fair to say um, the probation, automatic probation tools are biased without saying, well, how biased are the people making decisions now? I mean, you've just got to do that. So I have to, so my Luddite warning is if you don't see that, ladies and gentlemen, I just ask you to really think about it because it seems to me the criticism is far less forceful than when it's accompanied by a proper analysis of the failings of the existing system. When you're introducing a computer system, you're, there, there is a possibility that some things will get worse, but we need to, we need to, look at the things that get better as well as get worse and take a balance on the two systems. I think I would also point out that people have a habit of picking a bias that is particularly culturally charged when they want to make a point. So for example, there's been quite a lot of work on bias in face recognition. A lot of people don't like widespread face recognition. They think it's an infringement of personal liberties. And they particularly don't like the fact that some rather primitive um, face recognition systems don't recognize certain ethnicities as accurately as white people. Okay, and that's bad, I think. But it's not bad if it's discriminatory one way, but not the other way. Do you see what I mean? So if, for example, uh, one ethnicity is much more likely to be associated with crime and face recognition doesn't work with that ethnicity, then that's a bias in the other way, isn't it? That, get, that never gets mentioned. So 
That's another alarm bell for me on some of these criticisms. And the third alarm bell is it is quite common to, to complain about first-generation systems, which are inevitably pretty poor. Now, I don't want to be putting the balance too fairly against the critics. It is also true that computer scientists have a habit of implementing systems rather rapidly and um, not paying attention to societal impact. And there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done on that, and most modern computer science courses have quite a big component on um, ethics and professional behaviour now, because there have been some pretty bad examples in the, in the past, and in some other lectures in this series I'll try and talk about those. But, okay, so there's just a brief, uh, brief rant there for a, a moment about some of the Luddite um, uh, tendencies. And I put it in at this point because we're going to move into an area that if really does get people um, riled up, and that is the business of uh, automatic in intelligence gathering. And some of it looks very benign, like um, determining whether people are acting suspiciously and is intellectually very interesting. And some of it, like widespread um, face recognition, is less benign, that is for sure. But let's just pick a couple of examples. I picked an early one here. When I say early, I was I felt a bit embarrassed to put this in because in computer science terms, it's, it's very old indeed. It's over 10 years old. Um, it's not over 20 years old, it's over 10 years old. Um, but I like it a lot. It was by Mikhail Arani, who was a professor at the Weizmann Institute in, in Israel. And she was interested in this problem that of um, could you learn what suspicious behaviour is automatically? Uh, earlier on in this lecture, I referred to police officers having this sort of magic nose for something suspicious. And they were unable to enunciate or say what it was that they found suspicious, but they found something that made their nerves jangle a bit. So this task was to learn uh, what happened next in videos without actually encoding any explicit knowledge about what people were or what guns were or any of those things. So um, on the top, um, Mikhail has rate, uh, uh, she's, she's called this a query image. So this is the, uh, this is the thing that's going to be uh, analyzed and on the bottom is the um, it's the analysis and you'll see the idea is it lights up if something weird is going on. Now weird means something that hasn't seen in its training data. So let's just play the video and um, see what we see. Okay, so running man, um, that's all normal apparently. Uh, running man, yes, no problem. Oh, he stopped. Oh dear, yes. Well, I haven't seen any of those things before. Now the idea behind these sorts of systems is that when you've got wide field observation, you've got a lot of video data to process, this sort of thing might direct attention for a human, for a human operator. We'd say there's something odd going on. So I quite like this because it's the equivalent of the police officer's sort of nose for suspicious, well maybe crawling along the pavement isn't, isn't suspicious, but it's odd. It's not the sort of thing you would see every day. Okay, so what we... What's interesting about this um, sort of um, analysis, Mikhail Arani's analysis, is it doesn't have any assumptions or model as to what a human is. It merely forms a spatio-temporal model of how pixels uh, change. And it works pretty effectively over lighting changes and all those sorts of things. Most systems actually don't work like this. Modern systems do um, take some assumptions with them. And those assumptions would be that 
you can track a person and a person is basically a rectangle with a fixed set of colors in the rectangle. Uh, so let's have a look at one of those. This is a, I'm going to show you a system from some uh, Spanish um, researchers. They form an um, intellectual property consortium. There's an attribution on the video so we can have a look at it together. So in this part of the video, they're just demonstrating the ability to get a metric measurements out of a single provision. And here they are showing that they can track um, humans. Notice it's not completely accurate. There are plenty of humans that are not completely tracked. As you start to measure the dynamics of individuals in the sequence, you can get activity recognition. So these tracks here all very oh dear suddenly there's a lot of velocity going on there looks to me like there's some fighting and you can see the system in the top left here is sorting various possibilities against the you know is it a chase is it someone running is it a fight and so on and so on so um, this is an example of this is fairly state-of-the-art but not sort of super clever stuff um, and you can download toolkits to do a lot of this stuff and this is the sort of um, video surveillance that is now fairly routine and has to be fairly routine given the large amount of video surveillance that um, large amount of video sources that we have in video surveillance okay so in the first we first part of his lecture I said we're going to look at the sort of three um, aspects of the digital justice system um, the first one concerned digital first, which is that knotty problem of trying to make a digital justice system. The second one was digital intelligence and investigation, and we've been looking at that. And the next one is digital public contact. And I think it's fair to say that there's been less being done on this, um, which is a shame because it's one of the aspects of the justice system that people would make a big difference to the quality of their life, I think. Um, good digital systems to interact with the digital justice system would certainly make the lives of prisoners and people on uh, probation um, a lot better. Um, but it is a knotty problem because there's a lot of people and there's a lot of agencies. Now, so far I've been talking mostly about the USA and the UK, which are quite antiquated uh, democracies, of course, and therefore they have quite antiquated and filigree and complex digital justice systems. Uh, some of the uh, more um, exciting developments are possible when you've got a more integrated um, state. Now, I fully accept that as soon as you mention the name, some of the, you know, you might talk about China or, or the United Arab Emirates or Kazakhstan. As soon as you mention these countries, there's always somebody who jumps up and down and says, oh, what about civil liberties? These countries are terrible, etc., etc." They might be, and I, I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm not actually knowledgeable enough to really comment on those things. I, mean, I travel quite frequently to those various countries, but I'm merely interested in the possibilities for computerization and automation of um, a state so let's just have a look at this clip, which is from the BBC Click um, uh, 
TV programme. It's quite long, but it does cover quite a lot of the um, digital public access uh, aspects uh, that I was talking about earlier. Like so much of Dubai's over-the-top ambition, the police force wants to be seen using the latest crime prediction and surveillance technology to watch over the people. We have our cameras, our drones, our reports. We are going to live in science fiction movies. Artificial intelligence-based predictive crime systems, autonomous patrol vehicles and unmanned police stations are just a few of their futuristic initiatives. I am a humanoid service robot. Planned to be built in all of Dubai's neighbourhoods are the world's first smart police stations, which will be completely unstaffed. Citizens can pop in for a safe driving lesson, a quick coffee or even to report crimes. They can also meet Dubai's own Robocop. I am the latest incorporation to Dubai's police department. But unlike the movies, hello, he'll kill you with kindness. You have really pretty eyes. <laughs> I think I'm getting hit on by a robot. Do you think I'm beautiful? Yes. I love talking with you. <laughs> Thank you. You are absolutely astoundingly gorgeous, and it's the least interesting thing about you. Oh! My sensors detect a paparazzi among us. <laughs> Guess who it is? It's him. Flirting aside, the head of artificial intelligence for Dubai Police sees the future with AI and robotics very much at its heart. Behind it is the uh, artificial intelligence, so it can see you, it, can, it has a facial recognition, so it can identify the person in front of him, and send all the live feeding to the command and control system. We do have a project, what we call it Dubai Eye, where we have integrated all the CCTV cameras uh, across the city, and on top of that, you're gonna build a smart system where it can has has a facial recognition. It's so difficult to monitor more than 10,000 cameras in the city. So we have an intelligence system where we can analyze a live feeding from those cameras and can predict also and can identify all kinds of activities, especially the wanted people. Although this unmanned facility currently still needs a human on conference call when it comes to reporting a crime. So I would like to report a crime there is a robot here, and he's stolen my heart. He stole your cup? My heart. My, your heart, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've recently seen Chicago PD's crime-predicting algorithms, and now Dubai's police are turning their focus to preventing crimes before they even happen. This application analyzes past crime and uh, try to predict where and when the next crime in that zone could happen in the future. Another one of the smart services offered to citizens in Dubai is the ability to register if you have a history of cardiovascular problems. You can see on the map there, represented by hearts. Now this means that when an ambulance is called, it will instantly know that it could be attending a heart attack victim. And they said that this has allowed them to reduce the number of fatalities by more than 
that's an impressive statistic, but is this widespread surveillance reminding anyone else of a certain sci-fi film? People are going to equate this to minority reports. What kind of protocols do you have in place to make sure that the data is used in ethical ways in future? We don't predict who will commit the crime. We predict where it could happen and when it could happen. So we can prevent it and reduce the rate for the crimes. With one in three crimes being successfully predicted this time last year, the benefits of using artificial intelligence are, well, predictable. What's more surprising is that the drone team here in Dubai would like to see it taken even further. They believe they can use drones to spot a potential criminal by analysing a person's vital signs. The uh, drone operator uh, at the command and control can uh, select a target and the camera will automatically lock on that target. Using some different sensors, we can uh, identify blood pressure, temperature, uh, the weather itself can all play a role in uh, the person committing a crime. You can predict if the person is willing to commit a crime or a terrorist attack or something. Like so many of Dubai's big plans, all this stuff seems to have one foot in ambitious reality and the other in well-intentioned fantasy. It's a place worth keeping an eye on, though, and you can be very sure they'll be keeping an eye on us. OK, so there are lots of interesting things in that film, which is why I played it. Um, and the first one, of course, is the smart police station. So that's purely digital contact with the public. Uh, this lecture is taking place in the middle of a coronavirus lockdown. And suddenly the idea of a police station where one can interact with uh, the police without having any person-to-person -person contact using uh, surfaces that can easily be disinfected with UVA light, that seems very attractive and something that might be very... Uh, as, by the way, is the idea of using service robots for um, interaction. The advantage of a service robot is it, you come, it comes to you rather than the other way around. Then in the middle there, they were using PredPol or something like it to identify boxes. And the interviewer made the usual assumption that it was somehow identifying people. Well, it wasn't. It was identifying regions in that might be uh, worthy of some dose. And there's some work out there on the amount of dose that you require in order to cure crime. Somewhere between 8 and 20 minutes if I is what you require so you need a policeman or police officer visiting somewhere for between 8 and 20 minutes to make a difference and at the end they were using drones and well drones can indeed track people because there's intelligence in there so that's fairly easy i don't know how you measure blood pressure remotely that seemed a bit fanciful but you can certainly measure people's pulse remotely if you um uh, people's faces change colour uh, very rapidly as the blood pulses through your face and there's a number of papers showing that you could you can do that and use that. Uh, presumably you could use that for some sort of mood identification or anxiety identification. So, so there are aspects there. When you put them together, you can see a system. Oh, the other thing I liked or was noted was the integration with the medical services. So we had people who were 
willing to um, give up knowledge, you know, uh, impinge on their own privacy by telling the police that they had a cardiac condition, and that would allow presumably more effective routing and better pickup of patients when bad things happen to them. So, now how can Dubai sort of do this? I mean, obviously there's lots of money in Dubai, which helps, but there's also more integration between the emergency services, and that's what tends to happen when you have uh, newer democracies. And of course we can be highly critical of those newer democracies because we don't like the way they, they run their country, and that's, that's certainly been a consistent theme throughout the British and US governments, very keen to um, give their opinions on how foreigners run their countries, but they do have some operational benefits. So summing up, I would say, you know, there's a lot of progress in the DII aspect uh, we identified, the digital intelligence and investigation. And there's a lot of prospects there for the application of artificial intelligence mediated by uh, law enforcement officers. There is a constant worry for ethicists and civil liberty specialists on uh, these grounds, and maybe it's right that there are worries. I would make a special plea that these worries are balanced against a critique of the current system. You know, many times when I look at these critics, I, I think, well, the current system isn't too great, you know. So I really would wish, I would wish automatic systems to be better than the current system, but you do have to measure the current system. I think when it comes to digital public contact, there's less progress. Um, you know, not all the UK police forces are yet on Twitter, so there's obviously some way to go. I mean, my favourite, which is the uh, the uh, nuclear police force we were talking about earlier, the one with over a thousand officers and made ten, only made 10 arrests, um, they don't have a Twitter account, so they're not interested. They're not interested in the public at all, um, let alone any digital contact uh, with them. No contact at all, I think, would be the right sort of contact as far as they're concerned. Um, and then this is very knotty area, which is digital first, trying to make a digital criminal justice system. From my perspective, I think that's very important. And I think, you know, lawmakers and politicians should really place that as a priority for us because we we need to commit to some simplification and rationalization of our criminal justice system. Otherwise, the automation of it is not really feasible. And if we can't automate it, we won't be able to measure it properly. And if we can't measure it properly, then we're in we will run the danger of run running a very primitive, quixotic and whimsical uh, system, not to say an expensive one. OK, so that's the end of this lecture and a brief promo for the next one, which is coming up on the 26th of May, where I should be looking at cash and whether it has a future. Thank you.